You're listening to Arts Talk Radio, and I'm Michael Hasted. We bring you interviews as well as news relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, which are either in English or where language is no problem. We concentrate on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and the surrounding areas. Arts Talk Radio Online. Features on the arts in English. Because there's nothing much happening here at the moment, and because we can't do face-to-face interviews, we've been trawling the archives again to find something you may not have heard before. No, you haven't switched channels by mistake. You're still listening to Arts Talk Radio. Although it's got nothing to do with the Netherlands, here's a bit of nostalgia for the older listeners and something new for the younger ones to discover. For those of you not old enough to remember, Mark Winter was a chart-topping pop singer before the Beatles, and that was his biggest hit, called Venus in Blue Jeans. Mark later went on to become, and remains, a successful actor. I met up with him for a chat a few years back, and in our wide-ranging conversation, he spoke about his life as a teen idol in the early 60s and on his transition to acting. I started by asking him about the rigours of touring when he, like his audience, was still only a teenager. Yeah, do you know, I didn't do that many no. tours, actually, Michael, no. Um, I did my first one in September 1960, <laughs> uh, which was great. That was only three weeks. I did a lot. I did a lot of quite a lot of work abroad in the early sixties because I went to Australia in sixty one for the first time, and I had quite a lot of hit records in Australia. And consequently, I, I went back again in sixty one. So I was away for six months in sixty one. I was three months there first of all from March, and I went back again in the autumn after a summer season. I did, um, and then I was asked to go back there every year. Which was great because I was touring with people like you know the Everly Brothers and Bobby V, and uh, yeah, so I, I had some really good times and I was in Australia every year and a couple of times in New Zealand, but there were a lot of us used to do those tours. I mean, when I was out with Scylla and and um, Sounds Incorporated and the Seekers, you know, I mean, they were wonderful those tours. Do you never do any of that now? Because there are a lot of sixties no. tours going around. I've never there? done one. I've never done a sixties revival. I've been asked a few times to do them, but so when was the last time you oh, worked gosh. as a as a pop singer? Or team um, I suppose it was in the in the seventies, really. It was in the seventies. Um, I was still, and that wasn't a tour. I was just uh, playing Sunday concerts at the Blackpool Opera House. And they weren't solely pop concerts. It was a mixed bag. I mean, sometimes I'd be the guest artist on with Shirley Bassey. And she was wonderful, of course. <laughs> she wouldn't go to Blackpool, you know, unless she had a private plane. 
And that was then. <laughs> so I, I, I was put on the plane. I was on the plane with her, and um, we'd fly to Little St Anne's, and then I'd wait for her to finish her. I was usually on before her, the, the opening of the second act. And then uh, a car would take us to the airport, and we'd stop for fish and chips on the way, and um, her, her and her husband, uh, Ken Hume, would have champagne ready, and we'd get on with board and have fish and chips <laughs> and champagne going back to London, which was great. Um, but that wasn't strictly a pop thing. They were a mixed bag. Sometimes I was with people like the Baron Knights. So what was the, the transition? Um, you, because, there, I mean, there was a lot of um, your contemporaries went into acting. I mean, people like, I don't know, Jess Conrad, uh, Jim Dale, Adam Faith, John Layton mm -hmm. made the transition. How was your? Was it a sudden transition or was it a gradual one? John was an actor before John Layton, before he was a singer, and it was coincidental that he was in that series on television and had a hit record with uh, Johnny Remember Me, wasn't it? Uh, and Wild yeah. Wind, which were, were recorded um, by Joe Meek. But John was actually an actor before yeah. then, and so was Adam Faith. In a small way, and he was a film runner as well. Oh, I knew he worked in the film business. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and, and Jess was an actor before he made records. Uh, Jess made a couple of um, black and white films in the, in the late fifties, because uh, I met him in 1960. Uh, first of all, through my manager Ray McKenna, who knew him, and it was after that that Jess started to get into records. And then I, I toured uh, on a bill that he was on with Gene Vincent, you know, the American uh, bebop balloon guy. Uh, and Jess now, I think Jess does still do those pop things well he's incredible jess i mean he's he's invincible i think he's quite extraordinary he's phoned me up a few times and asked if i'd be on the bills with him at windsor because he does occasional once sunday um pop concerts at windsor and he's asked me if i would be on the bill and i said well really it's not worth coming out of the woodwork of having not done pop stuff for so long to do four odd sundays at windsor mm. it's just not worth it but he did say last year when he rang me um, one of the, about the fourth time he rang, he said, "Look, he said, you know, he said, I, I know here, Phil. He said, it must be great doing plays and long runs and musicals. He said, he said, I would love to have been doing what you're doing. He said, but it never really happened. I mean, I know he would have liked to have done that. And Cliff was exactly the same because when I was in my very first play in London in 1970, which was Conduct Unbecoming at the Queen's Theatre in Shaftesbury Avenue, Cliff sent me a first night telegram saying how much he envied me." in doing what I was doing, because he wanted to make that transition too into acting. As you know, made a couple of quite good early films, Cliff, you know, as, as Presley did. And, you know, but then it went the sort of, you know, in those rather corny musical things. Um, and I saw Cliff in a play, actually. He, well, he wasn't that good. Well, I, I thought Presley could have had a good future, frankly. I really did. Cliff didn't stand a chance, no, I mean... I'll tell you why, because I saw him in Five Finger Exercise, you know, the Peter Schaffer yeah. play at the old Bromley Theatre, before it was burned down, there's a new one there now. And he didn't have a chance, because every time he came on stage, the audience was full of mums and young girls who oohed and aahed throughout the whole play. But he, he was in a re couple of reasonably good films. Espresso Bongo was a reasonable Very film. good. And he was Very OK good. in that because he was well cast. He was yeah. cast to type. Very good. Um, and Adam Faith was a very good actor. Adam and, was very good. And Jim Dale did a lot of work at the National. Jim was very good. He, he, he went, went to New York yeah. with um, Frank Dunlop's company and was in um, uh, A Flea in Her Ear. And that's one of the reasons why he stayed in New York um, and he got himself an agent and that's one of the reasons why... Because uh, he was a bit zany, Jim, you know, he could do sort of zany things. It was all carry-on films, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and when he did a, um, this uh, flea in her ear for Frank Dunlop in, in, on this off-Broadway theatre, apparently he used to do mad things like run along the back of the seats behind the audience, you know, on the backs of the seats yeah, yeah. and balance. <laughs> so when they were casting the part of P.T. Barnum oh, right, on yeah, Broadway, yeah, yeah. Jim was up for it, and because he had this 
outgoing personality and a bit crazy, which P.T. Barnum was, you know, over the top, really. Um, um, well, he was a great showman, you know. And Jim was able to get that across in his yeah, audition yeah. piece. And he was the first P.T. Barnum Because Michael ever. Crawford did that, didn't he? He did it yeah, over yeah. here. I played it as well, both in South Africa and America later on. But uh, Jim, Jim was very, very good. I mean, there, there were a few actors, who, uh, a few people who were singers and went into acting, but sometimes it worked the other way around. Mm. But it, the transition time for me, I think, came once I was... Well, I, I did my first musical in Ireland in 1967 with Milo O'Shea. It was a, I played a second lead... And it was the life story of Percy French, the famous Irish songwriter. And um, people normally go, who? <laughs> but when you start, when you listen to his songs, like, Percy have you heard of Phil the Fluter from the town of Ballymuck? Well, the times were going hard with him. In fact, the man was broke. Dee, 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 dee. He wrote all those yeah. wonderful little Irish songs. Very indigenous. And once I did that music in 67, I thought, I want to be in a book show. But that was as Mark Winter pop singer. Yes, but I was playing the part of Charles Manners, who was a high baritone, who was an actual character, mm. who was Percy French's close friend at Trinity College in Dublin. So it was a, it was a, it was a genuine real story. Mm. Uh, I, I had two songs. It was a second lead. Uh, Milo O'Shea was wonderful as Phil, who was a tramp, whom Percy French wrote mm. the song about. Um, and uh, I, after I'd done that show, that book show in '67, I really missed being in a, in a book show because you know, as a solo singer, it's a pretty solitary life. It's very solitary. But Unless you get all the credit as well, though. Well, yeah, but it, it, there's more to life than that. I think mm. you know. If you, I had a, my own pianist, MD, travel with me quite a lot. He was older than me, so come the end of showtime or in those days in the 60s, there was lots of good cabaret dates around. Sadly, there aren't any more, but there were. There, were a whole, there was a whole circuit of them, particularly in the north and midlands of, of England. And uh, at the end of the evening, when you'd done your act, your hour, at 10 o'clock, well, my MD pianist, being an older guy, would go off with the other musicians who were provided by the club. And then, I don't know, they'd go to other clubs or they'd sit and have quite a few bevies, I think, until the early hours. And I didn't want to do that. I just mm. didn't want to do that. It wasn't. I mean, I'm, I'm not you know, really a, much in the way of a drinker at all, and, uh, and and I found it pretty solitary. But once I was in a book show, I so enjoyed working with other people, which I had done actually working in big. Pan I'd done some very big pantomimes that were wonderful. Little shy girl, I'd like to make you my girl, but it's time I try to catch your eye. Peak of your teen idol phase when you were 1920. Did you have a game plan at that point? No, none at all. And what did you think you were going to be doing when you were? You started quite young, 16 or 17. And My first record when I was 17. And you picked it, what, 1920 or something like that? About I mean, 21, I 22. No, 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 no. I was about 21, 22. Um, yeah, when the and you, and, and I had about four or five. I had about five years mm. of good, good. And what did when you were at your peak then? 
What did you think you were going to be doing at 40? Well, at that stage, you know, Michael, I mean, nostalgia has played a huge part. I mean, mm. who would have thought that... I mean, I have some compilations out and four yeah. CDs out. And I think it's more now than that. They were even 10, 15 years yeah, ago. Yeah, there are, because I think people are reminded of a kind of times and mm. times that were more fun. And I think it's also a lot to do with this has been the transition to CDs. Oh, yeah. Where they had to, you know, um, repackage things. So they thought, well, we might as well put some old, oh, old yeah. stuff in as well. And I think, I think um, you know, of course, in those days, you, you would have about six or seven people on the bill who all had hit records. And the ones that um, <clears throat> could actually perform on stage. And there's a huge demand still. I know, as yeah. I say, I have been asked to go out on tour, on, on pop tours. But the other thing that, for me, doesn't really work is that of those one-nighters, you'd be lucky if you did 70 one-nighters a year. 71 nighters. Well, what do you do the rest of the year? I think a lot of them do more than that. I mean, I was talking to the searchers a, a few weeks ago, and they reckon to work 300 nights, really? 300 days. Well, the other thing that <laughs> this is in my mind is doing a play on a weekly tour, as I've said to you earlier, is, is it's relentless and it has its you know it has its tough side as well as its good side. I don't think I'd want to do one-nighters and find a different place to stay every night. Singing the same song and... And that was another thing. I, I really relished being challenged mm. when I did my first musical and then a musical in London in 69 um, and then uh, the first play, Conduct Number Coming, in 70. I went to Australia with that for six months and then I came back and found I was a, like a jobbing actor because I decided to stick with that. And I did lots of other wonderful stuff in rep apart from Sleuth, you know, I did Macbeth... Uh, you, didn't, you didn't go to drama school or anything like no, that. No, not at all. But I, I, but I was lucky that I was offered. I was offered these parts because it was a bit of trick casting, really, to have somebody who's in the pop world come and play but Shakespeare. Didn't, didn't you find that acted against you to a certain extent? It did, that you weren't taken seriously. No, I was actually because I was very lucky that I had good notices, um, and I got more and more inquiries to go and play in rep, which I wanted to do because I wanted an across-the-board experience of all kinds of plays. Um, and I was also still being seen for uh, musicals and things. So I was, I was very lucky that I had an across-the-board consideration. And as summer seasons and pantomimes started to fade out, you know, variety started to die off, um, <clears throat> which is a great tragedy, I think, terrible tragedy, um, I, I found that I fitted in well with uh, being able to divide my time between musicals in London, I was in Cats, played Phantom, you know, um, and and Charlie Girl and, and other things and I was very lucky. Um, what else? I oh, Sweet Charity in London and uh, um, but I, I was just fortunate that, I, that they came. They came away. I was accepted in a different guise. That's what I'm trying to say. Because I think yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry to say the musicals were, were a backdoor entry into straight theatre, but they were certainly a, a transition point for for somebody who was primarily a singer mm. to go from musicals to then into absolutely into straight theatre. Yeah, but I, I mean, it doesn't happen to everybody. You know? yeah. I mean, I think Craig Douglas, uh, oh Craig Douglas, who was in um, No No Nanette. Yeah, it didn't work for him. Either the public couldn't take to him playing whatever he was playing in No 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 Net. Tom, I think, was the character. Um, but it just didn't continue. And I, but I made a concerted and, and firm decision not to go back into the pop world at that stage because I wanted casting people to think of me seriously as an actor. Um, all right, I was still in musicals, but I wanted to be considered as an actor as well. So I, I suppose I put myself through the same... Um, and a harness as a jobbing actor would in, in terms of auditioning, learning speeches, and, and all that, that that entails. Did it open or close doors for you, the teen idol thing? Or 
Oh, the tea night will open doors. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. And as I say, I think that um, because I'd done a lot of work singing on the BBC with the BBC big band and orchestras and stuff like that, so I was able to have good consideration for musicals. And also, I had an agent who was a major part of assistance to me, a man called Ian Bevan, who sadly is no longer with us, but he was my agent for 30 years. And he, he I, I suppose you could say that he had some connections with musical people because he also handled Tommy Steele. Uh, and, uh, of course, Tommy's career went into family musicals. So Ian was of great assistance in guiding me, even though initially when I said I wanted to go into musicals and, and, and not, you know, uh, continue with the cabaret and stuff like that, um, he, he said, well, you haven't had any drama training. He said, I don't know if that will you know, work for you. He said, and also, of course, you can remember, he said, you earn a lot less money than if you're a solo pop person. And I think it's probably true. I don't think I've... Did you, uh, did you make any money as a pop singer? Yeah, but nothing like what they make today. I mean, I was I mean money to keep? Not really, no. No, no. I mean, what, what one was paid then was... Well, I think a my, good wage, my, I think, fir my first uh, summer season at Bournemouth on the pier, I got £15 a week, which I suppose in 1960 was good. Yeah. But then I, but then I, I paid my agent, my manager. I sent some money home to my mother. I paid my digs that were ten and six a night. Bacon and beans every morning. <laughs> Happy days. And being woken up by the guy next door who got up to empty his um, potty under the bed in the middle of the night, <laughs> coughing his heart up. Um, but yeah, so uh, good times. I was very, I was, I loved it. It was great. It was what wonderful. What was the most you earned as a, as, as a pop singer? Do you think on a weekly basis? Uh, Three fifty a week was tops. When was that? Being mid sixties. Yeah, that was good then. Wasn't yeah, it? very good. Very good, yeah. But, I, but, you know, as a solo singer, you have a lot of expenses. Yeah. Because I pay for my own... I didn't have a band. I didn't have a group or a band, so I paid for my own musical arrangements. And quite often I was working with big bands or big orchestras. And that, that was quite expensive even then. You'd you know. all your own arrangements and everything. To yeah, I mean, nowadays they're, they're yeah, formidable. Yeah. Nowadays, a big band arrangement would cost you in the region of £500. But um, they were expensive even in those days. So, you know, and I had a publicist, so, you know, I had quite a lot of outgoings. Hmm. Yeah, I did have quite a lot of outgoings. But um, to tell you the truth, I never ever thought about money. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a spendthrift. I wasn't somebody who wanted to live high. Because you came, interest me. You came from a fairly humble background, didn't Very you? Very humble. Sort of South London, working class, yeah. Castle, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. When you were a child, when you were, I don't know, 10, 12, 13, what did you think you were going to be or want? When I was, to by be? the time I was 12, I wanted to be a singer, because I'd been uh, uh, lead choir boy in the parish church. We'd moved from the Elephant Castle by then. We'd moved to um, a place called uh, Downham near Bromley in Kent. And uh, I was uh, in, the, in the church choir, and I was the lead choir boy. So I was singing all the solos and things. And I knew then I wanted to be a singer. That, but I wasn't, I didn't want to be a singer to make a lot of money, funnily enough. I didn't. I just wanted to be a singer, because I loved singing. It was, it was pure luck that my mother, who'd remarried, she, um, she was divorced when I was very young, she remarried when I was seven. Um, and they moved, we were moved from the Elephant Castle, um, from the two rooms we lived in. Um, to this council estate down near Bromley and Kent. And my mother started having a second family with uh, my stepfather, and she had five children by him. And uh, it just so happened on that council estate, there was a guy who had a, a, a group called Hank Fryer and the Rockefellers. His real name was Alan Fryer, and he was a Coleman. <laughs> but at weekends, he was Hank Fryer. Did he scrub up OK? <laughs> yeah, he did. He was very good. He was very good. But he was an Elvis imitator. Oh, yeah. But I used to hang around with them. And um, they had a couple of regular dates. The co-op dance hall at Peckham was one. 
And on one particular Saturday night, um, when I was with them, I used to help me carrying their, their their gear, you know, the drums and the amplifiers. That were nothing like the amplifiers that they, there are today. Box, I mean, they AC, were little AC30, box, about right. size of a suitcase. So, uh, and, I, and, and I said to him after a few of these Saturday nights, and he used to have a break in the middle and go over to the pub and have a few drinks, you know, because he was about two years older than me. And I said, would you mind if I, because the, the, his his band, or his group rather, it's only a four-piece group, would play instrumentals. I said, can I can I sing a couple of songs with them, you know? A couple of beat ballad things, which I, I like, like Donna and Teenager in Love, stuff like that. And he said, yeah, 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 why not, yeah. Uh, and I did, and as it happened, and it, obviously it's pure luck, but there are people that go around looking uh, for, for possible talent. Um, the guy who, was, who became my manager had come to the co-op dance hall, Peckham, he was going around scouting. And he was a, he was a Lloyd's broker, but also he ghost wrote articles for the NME, and he sort of had fingers in various pies, you know. And he approached me afterwards and said, how I thought about being a pop singer, which of course I had. And through him, I made a demo record, demo tape, um, and eventually I got a, an audition with EMI, Nori Paramore, who was Cliff's recording manager. And I got another audition with Decca. That was through meeting Lionel Bart, because I sang in a music publisher's office and Lionel was there. People used to do that, used to go around to a music publisher's office and sing yes, in cold blood. You stand there and sing, and they say, okay, sing for me. Because in those days, music publishers would get a song come in, and they would recruit a singer like myself or Matt to Monroe demo, to make a demo, and it was sent to the artist. artist yeah. um, and so my manager took me to a few publishers to say, can you use my artists on any of your demos? Mm -hmm. And on one of them, it so happened that Lionel Bart was in there talking to this guy, Jimmy Phillips who was the head of this of Keith Prowse at music then and um, and he, he said he said if you he said if you if you um, well, I think Ray my manager spoke to him and said you know he was trying to get me kind of moving the business he said get in touch with Frank Lee at Decca go away little girl go away little girl i'm not supposed to be alone with you are sweet, but our lips must never meet. I belong to someone else, and I must be true. In those days, there was very much a sort of homosexual undertone with people like Joe Meek and uh, Larry Parnes and... and, and um, well, you can see the attraction there, can't you? Yeah, no, I'm just... I, I was, what I was going to ask is, did you not feel or... Were you aware of any sort of vulnerability on your no. part? Because you were sort of very pretty as a, as a boy. Were you not aware of that? Was it not no. a factor? No. Never? No, it didn't bother me at all, no. But you, were you aware of it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Were the course. other were the other guys aware of it? Oh yeah, I, I think you know, when Marty, Marty Wilde, Joe Brown, Billy Fury, Duffy Power, Johnny Gentle, um, Georgie Fame, 
rule managed by by Larry Parnes, you know. So there has to be, of course, a reason for that. Um, There was an attraction, wasn't there, between... Uh, but managers who wanted to have young, young boys uh, as their, as their protégés. But th- there is this theory that it, it worked so well because in the first instance they picked these very pretty boys, some that had very greatly talented, others not so, and then gave them this sort of, if you like, butch image. Mm. And it was a combination of these two things. You couldn't say that about the Beatles, though, could you? I, I mean, they had no, their image already. I think this was another thing I was going to ask you. Did you not feel that... Um, the Beatles, as far as an act like yours was were, was concerned, and a lot of the single uh, boy singers before then, mm. that to a certain extent they were not wishing to sound disrespectful, but sort of watered down America as they were doing American cover. No, versions. I agree with you. And I, because the, America was the, that exactly. was the home originally. And when of pop music. The, when the Beatles started, it brought everything back to this side yeah. of the uh, of the uh, the Atlantic, and things changed and acts like yours and, and Billy Fiore and all that, Billy Fiore to a certain extent because he had a, a band, yeah. didn't actually make that transition very well, did they? No. Um, it's true that in the early 60s there were very few beat ballad singers. There was mm. myself, Craig Douglas, on the Ameri- I can't think of anybody else here actually. I suppose Billy J. Kramer sort of went to that ilk. But he was slightly tipped onto the post Beatles side. But you had from America, you had Frankie Avalon. And Bobby V. Bobby V, Bobby Rydell. Uh, That's about it, really. I mean, there are very few what they call beat ballad singers. Um, Although Frankie Avalon and Bobby Rydell are still going. I mean, Bobby Rydell, I know, is is touring Australia again in in June. He wasn't really a beat ballad singer. He was a bit more rocky, wasn't he? Um, But I think, um, yeah, I mean, Bobby Rydell had a great voice, you know. He had big hits with Valari and Sway and things like that, you know, cover versions of songs that were hits in the 50s. Um, But... Yes, it was a short-lived period for, for Britain's beat ballad singers. But it's one of the reasons why I think um, records of beat ballad singers are sort of in their rarity, you know, because they didn't press as many of the English boys as they did of the Americans. They didn't yeah. press as many copies of the records. I didn't actually look through my records, see if I had one. <laughs> I've got these old... Remember, the, for the old seven and a half, they made these yeah, little cases. 45 singles, yeah, yeah. That's right, and I've got... Uh, and then when Bobby Darin came along, it went into another era, sort of both swing and rock and pop. But and that went else. into more into the cabaret it type did, thing. It did, it did. the chart but, thing. But, uh, but I, I think it, it was... Once the groups came along in, the, in 1963... Yeah, I think the death knell was Did you feel that? Yes, I did, yeah, because it was groups all over the place. Mm. I was still... But I was lucky. By then, I'd sort of moved into summer seasons and pantomimes. Mm. So I, my year was mapped out, I, more or less. I knew that I was going to be doing a 16-week summer season, uh, a big pantomime summer, which then would run for... Well, gosh, I did one at the Palladium that ran from um, the second week of December until the third week of March. When you were, when you were at your hype... Um, what was your... Ambition isn't, isn't quite the right word, but... Did you think you would be successful if you were just working, or did you have um, uh, ambitions to play the Palladium or number one? I mean, what 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 were your goals when you were? I hoped to play the Palladium. It? Yeah, was that was the peak? That was the pinnacle, was it? Yeah, yeah, for, yes, it was. I think it was for anybody who was in the business world. If you if you appeared at the Palladium, you you know, and I would, I hoped to be on Sunday night at the London Palladium, which I was, um, and and I and I was there in a massive pantomime with Frankie Howe, which was great, and I've been there on a couple of other concerts. So, yeah, that, that was a bit of a pinnacle. Um, playing the Albert Hall was another one. I did that on a pop, pop concert in about 1962 or one. Um, before they put the baffles in, so the, yeah. the acoustics would have been pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, and it was funny because I'd sung there as a choir boy when I was 11. Really? Mm. So it was interesting to be back there when I was 18. Uh, but, yeah, I think it was, it was a short-lived period for beat ballad singers and I could see that the end was coming. But what I didn't want to do... 
uh, by the time the mid-60s came. I could see that um, although they were cabaret dates, and I was never wildly happy doing them, although they were successful, because you were in some town, you know. Like, That's right. Uh, you know, West Hartlepool or somewhere. That chicken in a basket while you were well, trying well, to no, see. No, I didn't discriminate against that, but it's just, what do you do all day? And once you'd been to whatever the local gallery was, um, and I, I loved swimming, so I used to go swimming, I've been to the pictures. You know? yeah. um, I wish now I'd been learning an instrument then. I wish I'd started to learn a You're portable instrument. You're just learning music. the sax then? I've been, yeah, the last 18 months I've been learning the sax, yeah. But I wish I'd started then, because I had time to, and I could have had a portable instrument with me everywhere I went, you know, and I had time. But I didn't. I just read and, you know, went to the pictures, and, yeah, and I thought, this is not what I want to do. I could see... A lot of singers who had been very big earlier on were playing working men's clubs, and I didn't want to end up playing working men's clubs. It's a downward spiral. It wasn't right for me. I just mm. didn't. The kind of stuff I was doing, I knew from having done uh, a few dates that were uh, in ballrooms, which was also not for me, really, because I knew the kind of thing that I needed was some kind of presentation. And if I didn't have presentation, if I just... I mean, I did play a couple of places where, you know, you'd walk through the audience and... You know, uh, it, it, was a bit, it was a bit too casual for me. I was looking for something that was a bit, uh, bit more presented. And so when I moved into the theatre, and the first time when I was doing pantomime, for instance, and summer shows, I liked it. I thought, you know, the lighting was right, uh, there were people that were experts in their field, you got a really good band behind you, and it was a, it was a whole different level from being on tour and being backed by two guitars, bass and drums. And I, I aspired to that, and I thought, if I can't sing with a big band, and I was lucky enough to sing with lots of wonderful big bands, Eric Delaney, Bob Miller, let's say BBC big band and all that, but if, if, I, if I can't sing with those, I would rather be in the theatre. And once I did that book show in 67, that was my aim. But had the opportunity arisen in whatever, the late 60s, early 70s, to become uh, a big singer, if you are, for want of a better yes. You know, a Tony Bennett or whatever. Yeah. Would you oh, have yeah. gone that oh, way? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I actually, um, you know, when Matt Monroe came on the scene, and I knew Matt once he got going, and he's a lovely guy, lovely guy. And I so envied most of the songs that he recorded because that gave him international fame in America. And his style was very much an American style. It was lovely. It was just beautiful. He had a wonderful recording voice. And, and I, I think, God, I wish I had that song Walk Away or Portrait of My Love. You know, I thought, what, what, love, what a, a lovely sound. You know, my voice was a bit younger than his because, you know, Matt was a smoker and, it, and he had a kind of sound in his voice that when it was recorded, it gave it a kind of resonance. And my voice at that stage, at that age, didn't have that because Matt was older than me. He was older yeah. when he came into the business. Um, but though, I would love to have had the success that he had with his records because it did give him that international status. And I've got most of his records now. But I, I, I'm, I'm exceedingly happy with what I'm doing because... As I said earlier, I'm, I'm constantly challenged with new things, and that's what I like. But I like to be learning new but things. But if the phone went tomorrow and said, can you do a season four singing at Las Vegas, you'd say... That wouldn't happen now, because Las Vegas has changed. I was, no, there, I was there two years ago. Uh, no, I don't know if I would change my did way you, of did... life now, because I've got three children sure. and everything, and, and you know, I was a late father, um, and my, my, my children are, are still in education, all three of them. Uh, one's 23, one's 18, and one's 15. And, uh, two what do they think of... Um... Mark Winter. Oh, this, well, I'm just just dad, aren't I? I mean, nothing. They don't think of it at Do all. Do they see it? Have you, have you shown them stuff? Do they play the records? No, never. Not interested. <laughs> Not interested at all. They'd rather play you know, these funny groups like Elbow or, you know, whatever these names of groups are that they listen to. These Did days. you never write your own stuff? I did. I read about five songs that I recorded. They were B-sides. Mm. Yeah. When I listen to them now, actually, I think they're quite good. One's called Don't Cry. Another one, The Best Thing in My Life Is You. 
Um, yeah, but Tony Hatch was very generous in that respect because he's my A&R man, and if I wrote something, he'd say, oh, well, bring it in, let's have a listen to it, and we'll see if we can sort out some sort of arrangement. And, uh, yeah, consequently, I did record about five of them. Um, and I wish I'd written more now, actually. I wish I'd written more. Not, not they bring in... Do you still do it? No, no, I think the whole, the whole form of songwriting's changed, isn't it? I mean, songs don't have much of a form anymore, they're a hook. But there are singers that, a couple of singers I'm particularly fond of, which I think very much are your style of singer from, I only know you from, from, from your early career, um, Art Garfunkel. Oh, I love Colin Blunstone. Yeah. Yes. Mm. You've got this very Oh, Simon and Garfunkel, I love them. I've got a lot of their records. But have you listened to, Simon Gar uh, to the Gar Art Garfunkel albums? Yes, yeah, lovely. Fantastic. Lovely voice, yeah. And Colin Blunstone as well. Yeah, yeah. But no, in... in, in so there, there is, there is, a, there is a, a repertoire for, for this sort of... There life. is. You'd have to... You, the, the, I went to see Jack Jones the other week, actually. Oh, right. Fair, he was fair, here, Croydon. Yeah, 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 he was terrific. But he had a big band. He had a ten-piece band. You know, I mean, I don't know if a promoter would, would put me out with a 10-piece band. Jack Jones, if you're American, you have a yeah, certain yeah, extra yeah, glamour yeah, about yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you know, you really do. And he was very good. He was very good, because Jack, he must be, I never met him, I guess he must be 70 now, 71. He's older than I am. But he was very good indeed. And I've seen Tony Bennett in his later years, and he was very good too. But when I was asked to go to Vegas, I was doing a summer season with Morecambe and Wise at the ABC Blackpool, and Major Riddle was the guy who did the booking for the Sands, Las Vegas. And he got in touch with my agent and offered me a season there. But the contract was for a year, with an option on their part for a further year. And I said to my agent, what do you think about this? And he said, well, he said, they're not asking you to go there as a headlining act. They're asking you to go and sing in the saloon. Mm. When everyone's drinking, talking, you'd be out there singing Maria and people would be making a noise. He said, I think you would absolutely loathe it. It was a very good deal financially. A big American car at my disposal, a wonderful apartment. He said, but I think, he said, there are a few people that have gone that route. There was one guy, Gary somebody, I've forgotten his name, he used to be on television in the 50s and early 60s, who went over under that sort of um, offer and he completely disappeared into oblivion. I mean, I believe got so distressed and disheartened that he just either gave up or... Something happened to him, became a drunk or whatever, you know. Did but you ever tour America? Did you ever work there? No, I Did worked. Did you a record sale there? Uh, in New York, I had some good sales, yeah. And I, um, and I had one record that nearly broke. It broke in New York, but it didn't go anywhere. It was called Dream Girl. And I went over there on my way to Australia and did the radio shows. And I did the Merv Griffin show and the Clay Cole show. Because I don't think there are any British acts in that period that broke America. Well, no, Cliff never very, did. very difficult, very difficult. And I, I did quite a lot of promotion in New York, but nothing happened major. I rather hope Dream Girl might, but it didn't. So, yeah. Who did you admire in those days? Tony Bennett. He's always my number one act, my number one um, idol as a singer. And, uh, and Bobby Rydell. Of the American young people, I love Bobby Rydell. Because he, he, he could sing. He really could sing, and he was—he's a good musician. He plays very good drums, um, and uh, he had a hit with Wild One. In fact, one of the, another area where I was a bit envious was that Tony Hatch, because Bobby Rydell had never had a major hit in England, and his record label was released under the guise of Pie Records, which was my record label, and um, Bobby's manager and the company wanted Bobby Rydell to have a big hit here. So they got in touch with Pi, and Tony Hatch wrote a song especially for him called Forget Him. It's yeah, a good, very good song. Yeah. And when I heard it, I, I rang Tony up. I said, why didn't you, why didn't you give the song to me? I said, that song is ideal for me. And he said, well, he said, I had instructions from Louis Benjamin, who was the running Pi Records at the time for Lou Grade, that we had to come up with a hit song for Bob Rydell because we released a lot of records under the banner of that label, the subsidiary label. And uh, sure enough, he had a big hit. 
but I, I've met Bob Rideau, he's a very nice fellow. And he's still going. And Frankie Avalon's still doing concerts. He plays trumpet very well. He's a good musician. I was doing some research before I came, um, and I saw you on a bill with U.S. Bonds, Gary U.S. Bonds. That's right, and Johnny Burnett. That's right, because he, he was here with um, Bill Wyman All right. um, a couple of months ago. And But you know who was the hit of that tour, don't you? Even though I, I was on it as well, but I wasn't the hit of the tour. The hit of the tour was Gene McDaniels. Who Wonderful. Now, well, Gene McDaniels, he was the original recorder of £100 of Clay... Chip Chip, American uh, Tower of Strength, which American Frankie Vaughan called American. Yeah. Wonderful, fantastic voice. Um, and Tower of Strength was his first hit, was covered by Frankie Vaughan. 100 Pounds of Clay was covered by Craig Douglas. Uh, Chip Chip wasn't covered by anybody, and nor was The Puzzle. But what a great performer. And on that particular bill, he stole the shit. That was a rock and roll bill. That was a rock and roll bill. And I was doing some rock and roll stuff then, which I hadn't done a lot of. Um, and I was also comparing it. But Gene McDaniels, after his act, um, even though all, all his tracks were covered here, and Chip Chip and Puzzle weren't very big hits, but he sang his hits, of course, and he was such a great singer. Um, and he had his own pianist with him, a guy called Prince Shell. Wonderful, isn't it? And he would take his call, introduce his pianist, and he was on just before Gary U.S. Bonds, who was closing the show. And... The audience wouldn't let Jim McDonald's off the stage. I had to go back on and bring him back on. And this is on a rock and roll bill. As an encore, he sang the, uh, the standard song that only, I only knew of by Frank Sinatra called Spring Is Here, mm. which is a, a cocktail yeah. cabaret song, Absolutely. you know. And he sang it with just a piano and brought the place down. And that was an abject lesson that audiences, even as they're rock and roll audience, can still appreciate a really good performer who can sing. Absolutely. Mm. Terrific. He was, he, he was absolutely wonderful and a really nice guy. But he's now a very successful music publisher. He's made a lot of money. Do you miss those days at all? Oh, yeah, they were very exciting. I mean, there's a terrific... Um, there's a greater harnessing in being an actor and a, a lot more discipline. I mean, you have to look after yourself as a singer, of course. You can look after your voice and so on. But as an actor, um, the, the harnessing is, is quite severe. I mean, it's, the discipline is, is enormous, both mentally and in every other way. And if you're not a disciplined person as an actor, then I don't think you'd cut it, especially on tour. Especially on a run where you really have to control it, because I imagine it's fairly easy to let it slip and oh, yeah. become a bit blasé oh, yeah. about it. And, uh, and there's, there's, no, there's not a lot of margin for error, really, because it, it, it is a team thing, and, and you can't just think of yourselves. Arts Talk magazine provides the perfect companion to Arts Talk Radio, with reviews and previews in English of cultural events in Holland. Whatever your interest in the arts, our international team of writers will always provide something new and exciting to see online. That's Arts Talk Magazine, all one word, dot NL. Arts Talk Magazine, dot NL. I was talking to Mark Winter in England. I'm Michael Hasted, and I'll be digging up some more archive material for the next programme. So until then, it's goodbye and stay safe. To play us out, here is Mark Winter singing the old Everly Brothers and Roy Orbison hit, Love Hurts. Love hurts, love scars, love wounds and mars any heart not tough or strong enough to take a lot of pain, take a lot of pain.
inside you love hurts I know it's true that love hurts I've learned from you that love hurts It hurts <laughs>